0: Alright, welcome to Unpacking Ideas, the podcast where each week we look at a different piece of writing and unpack all the different themes and ideas. This week we're looking at On the Art of Discussion by Michel de Montaigne. Montaigne was a Renaissance philosopher and the father of the personal essay. This week helping me unpack this essay was my friend Luke Pretty. We had a great conversation about conversation and the importance of talking to other people about ideas. I really got a lot out of this conversation, and I hope you guys do, too. So maybe maybe before we get into some of the ideas, I can kind of give an outline of the entire essay, just a real quick bullet point summary uh, to kind of address maybe some of the terrain we might go through, and then we can kind of get into the, the nitty-gritty. Um...
1: And then, if it's okay with you, I'd like to do a complete summary of the whole collected works, if that's okay. <laughs> that is that is
0: okay. That is um, it's gonna be a long podcast, but hopefully people are
1: <laughs> it's are buckled necessary in and not pedantic. <laughs>
0: <laughs> exactly. So, Montaigne, his writing style, uh, if anybody listening's read, he's he's kind of all over the place, and I think one of the reasons for for that is because he used these essays as a way to explore himself he he found the subject as being uh the ultimate as as being like his way of understanding the world was through trying to understand himself better so some of these essays at times read like journal entries and he even says in the um the introduction the kind of like note to the reader uh he has some quip about like basically these essays were for me and maybe some of my family members and that like the general reader should not find any use from them um so i don't know if he's being kind of like overly humble there but uh obviously a lot of people have found a lot of use for him i mean he's been super influential to you know everybody from like shakespeare to voltaire and yeah, he's, you know, there's a lot of people still getting a lot of value out of that. He's today. very
1: self-deprecating, though. He is. Which implies that that isn't the whole picture.
0: Mm. I wouldn't
1: say there's no self-interest there uh, or, or sense of wanting to have an immortality project. Probably not none of that. But so but do I do f- think he wanted to leave a legacy for the people who knew him to understand him better. Mm. So,
0: do you think there's some false modesty with Montaigne, or do you think he's, he's genuinely skeptical of any possess?
1: No, I, I, I think, no, I, I would give him the credit of being self aware enough to realize that there is this, everyone has a sense of wanting to be immortal, wanting to have an impact on the world, but also that that's not a good look and mm. that that's not, not necessarily a bad thing to have that, to recognize it in yourself, uh, but then to show that would be a breach of character and virtue, and so the self-deprecation, which is much appreciated by the audience, uh, is kind of a signal, because someone who is wholly giving and has no sense of wanting to live, live on past their death, nobody wants to be around that person. Right. That's, true. Like, that's like someone who works in the for goes to the Peace Corps, right? Just lunatics. <laughs>
0: <laughs> right. Well, and he says a few times in this essay, uh, he talks a lot about stupid stupid people and stupidity. Yeah. Which I think he's kind of implying there that he is not one of these stupid people. So he I think he thinks at least highly of himself in the in the sense that Because um, he, he talks about stupid people as as if he's not a member of that group. Is that is with that the how caveat, you it? though?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yes. But he's also trying to be as self-aware as possible to recognize that his hatred of stupid people and stupidity in general is a weakness. He says that very, very much upfront. Mm. Right? I, I, I hate stupidity, but this is a flaw in my character that I'm going to now display and tell you about.
0: You're right, yeah, he does say that. And that not being able to tolerate stupidity is itself a flaw. Um, and he also says, he also says uh, on, on along the lines of stupidity, something like the tragedy of it is the stupid people are the confident ones, and the, the, the smart people or the wise people are, are the ones who are kind of insecure in their beliefs and... Part of that, he doesn't say this, but I'm, I'm thinking part of that is because, you know, if you're smart enough to realize how dumb you are, there is maybe a lack of, there is maybe some insecurity that comes with that, in that like, you know, you've you've reached a level where you can see your limitations, you can start to see how complex the world really is, how complex... A lot of questions really are, and with that, um, yeah, you maybe lose some of that confidence. And he says to the onlookers, to other people, they see kind of like the stupid person who's like super self-assured, and they see the the wise person who is left less, less self-assured, and they just assume the the stupid person is right or or knows the answers.
1: I think his take on on stupidity is not uh it's it's fairly nuanced I think as well. It's not your your standard definition of of stupid because he doesn't spend a lot of time attacking folk ideas. He talks about the example of superstition and he suggests that these ideas are kind of ridiculous and silly, but he also says that I would like to entertain these things. It's better to hear them than to not hear them. What he's attacking as stupid is actually the pretense of intelligence by this class of people who want clout, who mm. want to be recognized for being a show of their discussions, who want to be seen as, as brilliant minds. In his mind, that's the important kind of stupid to attack. So I think there's a sort of nuanced thing where he's trying to, uh, he's trying to do something by putting a label on that class of people because I think that's mostly what he's trying to get at, is this uh, this pretentiousness, which he doesn't like. Yeah. Most people are not labeling those people as stupid. He's labeling that behavior as stupid. So people have not done that before. When you label that clearly as something kind of polemical, stupid, then it gets people's attention. So I think it's also in part a literary style. That's a
0: really good point.
1: Because, yeah, he's
0: not using stupid in maybe the everyday wor- way that we would use it, you know, as like dumb and dumber like those jim carrey he probably likes that yeah (laughs) yeah like he he's labeling it i think he says somewhere else and maybe i'll pull up the quote he says something like along the lines of um pretty much like the the dumbest people are the ones that are most rigid in their judgments um let's see
1: if i right which is not the standard definition right and if I can pull from another essay, he also goes in depth on these, these, the um, folk wisdom of these remote, primitive, barbaric tribes that mm-hmm. have been discovered. And he doesn't say this is ridiculous. He goes into these things, which would be shocking to his readers probably because they don't know these things. And he says, you have to understand that you're just as weird to them as they are yeah. to you. So he's not calling that kind of stuff, oh, it's primitive, it's stupid. He's saying, when you say that's stupid and I, my culture is the best, that's, that's stupid.
0: Right, right. And he, I think there's some, one of his essays, it's like on cannibalism or something, which was that very might, controversial yeah. for for a lot of these kind of civilized Europeans reading to hear like somebody saying, well, maybe cannibalism isn't that crazy like maybe we're the weird ones yeah. for thinking it's crazy which was a pretty radical I think that idea that might be the
1: one i'm referring to yeah
0: yeah um but maybe we can backtrack a little bit bef- because before he gets into his talking about stupidity um he starts the conversation he starts the essay on conversation and he's kind of like singing the praises of conversation and he even says at one point that uh, he finds it a more fruitful practice than reading. And part of that is because he says it's more active and reading is that, cold and dead, I think. Yeah, reading it. is cold and that it's there's a passivity to it when you're reading. Um which I don't know, maybe bookishness. I would Yeah, bookishness, which I I would maybe argue that if you're if you're really reading at a high level or trying to really engage with the author, that that in itself is a kind of conversation. Um, but, yeah, I mean, his point is that when you are conversing with another human being, they are, in real time, challenging you on your ideas and beliefs, and that that kind of conflict, that kind of budding of heads or budding of brains is what leads to higher and higher and sharper thinking
1: yeah i I agree but i would i would push back slightly i had a slightly different understanding Mm. on that that point of uh reading sort of i think he calls it a cold and dead activity as opposed to something that's more more alive which is which is genuine discussion i i think that he's also he's doing something which is slightly more meta than just saying exactly what he means he's he's doing something sort of rhetorical, because this is the guy who's quoting Cicero every 10 sentences, right? Yeah. I mean, he's obviously extremely well read. Right. This is He's dedicated his life to reading. Yeah. He doesn't think that reading is a negative activity in itself, he thinks that thinking that reading is education and knowledge and being uh, a virtuous person and a master of yourself, he thinks that thinking that that's what that is, is the problem. He's trying to hone mm. in on this class of people that he thinks are are stupid, and he's try, he's taking them to task. So I think he's directing his... And, and that's why he's developed this somewhat polemical style. If you have to make sometimes relatively extreme statements in order to grab people's attention, reading is cold and dead, said the guy who quotes everybody all the time, right? right? So he doesn't really mean that. He means, well, that's not what we should call being learned i think Mm.
0: well yeah and he's definitely a bit of a contrarian in that regard as well because yeah he he obviously reads and even talks about some of the books that he's read um and at the time he was writing this he had kind of retired to this chateau and was basically like living isolated in a tower like writing all day so it's (laughs) which
1: is very pretentious in itself (laughs) yeah
0: and it's and it's ironic to write a essay about the importance of conversation as somebody who is living a bit like a hermit at least at that stage of his life um but i I really Mm -hmm. like that about him and i think sometimes so this is another kind of idea he brings up that i wanted to talk to you about He talks about um, kind of the importance of having conflict in a conversation and that when there's too much agreement, just like two people just agreeing with each other about everything or too much civility, he says, that the conversation gets stale and kind of falls flat. And um, so there are times where it seems like maybe he even takes a view that he doesn't agree with just to be... A bit of a gadfly and I know this is knowing you like I know this is something you do sometimes where um like if we're in a discussion or maybe like a group discussion like if everybody is kind of agreeing too much you might take a view uh that is contrary and maybe not always something that you agree with is that is that accurate
1: I think uh, yeah I I'm i really think that's important not just in discussions but in work mm-hmm. and in in marriage in friendship to sort of let things float along and oh we're in agreement but there are all there are these little things that are constantly bubbling up and i think it's it's good to just if there's if there's something that can disturb the waters a little bit then it prevents things from going going stale and that provokes uh, that's why being polemical is is often a good thing. It provokes something in the other person. So, so provoking something I think is, is doing this to critique this class of people, I think, but also to sort of challenge himself to explain Hmm. his lifestyle. Because later on, and we'll get to it, he, he, there's another meta critique here because he talks about when you don't like other people, um, When you there's something you dislike in others, well, you're you're identifying something in yourself, right? Yeah. Um, Right. So he's very uh, very Jungian in that sense. He kind of Mm -hmm. kind of nailed that. Well, he's talking about things he doesn't like, so he's obviously doing this as a critique of himself as well. Mm, Yeah. I I, he's the learned class. That aspect of himself. Now that's a great point
0: yeah in that anytime he there yeah, you're right, there is a kind of meta thing happening where anytime he critiques something by that logic, he is kind of critiquing that thing in himself. That's a really good observation. Um, well yeah, maybe we could get into that more as well now the the idea of because he talks a lot in this essay about um, about both giving and receiving feedback and critique. And yeah, that's one of the things that he says is that um, a lot of times when we critique somebody else, we are really just seeing a part of ourselves maybe that we don't, like, reflected back into them. I think here that kind of clarified my thinking on it a bit. Because, you know, sometimes it's hard to know when you receive feedback from somebody, especially, you know, negative feedback, whether or not... It is an accurate representation of you and something you're doing or if it's just their own shit projected onto you right Like if they're saying to you like hey you're a really shitty listener or like you um you know like one thing i've, I've been getting a lot lately is you're you're not good at providing empathy
1: when i'm complaining um people tell you that yeah You're Mr. Empathy. I don't know anyone who's more empathetic than you. You're the most empathetic person I've ever met. How could someone say that of you? Well,
0: not when somebody's, I think probably not when somebody's complaining.
1: Okay. Because I have a
0: bit of a, I I don't know, I have a bit of a, um, what's the word? I can be a bit of a devil's advocate. So if somebody's complaining to me about, like, their boss, a lot of times my go-to is just like, well, maybe. And their boss. Yeah, I'm like, maybe your boss isn't so bad. Maybe you're an asshole. (laughs) <laughs> and uh you know that's that good. that doesn't always go over well.
1: No, but that's I think that's probably a good thing. Yeah, I well, as you we were talking about that sort of provocation mm. if it's done in the right spirit, it, if it's done in a genuine spirit of malice, it's it's definitely not a good thing because it it has you have the intention to wound. But if you're doing it to sort of shake things up a little bit because because consensus is the status quo and as we as we reach a status quo things settle and then problems it starts to crack right Uh, i think it was ezra ezra pound who said the beauty of art is a brief gasp between two status quos Mm -hmm. so that means something has to come in and smash something in order for the pieces to then collect into something new in order for progress to be made and that works on a social level on a creative level, on an individual level, on a, on the level of friendship. I mean, that's the in alchemy that's called the solve et coagula where you have to dissolve something first and then it comes back together in a in a different and better form.
0: Yeah. Well, I guess I guess in the local example of me kind of doing that in that case with a friend, maybe it's not the time because they're they're wanting they're wanting and looking for empathy there. They're not kind of okay. like looking to kind of, like, solve the problem or get a more nuanced understanding of the situation. Right. Which yeah. I think is the mistake that I made, which is like, oh, let me help you see it more clearly. Or let me give you a more nuanced view. It's like, no, no, no. I want you to just tell me that my boss is horrible and, like, empathize with me. Um, yeah. So,
1: so just, just nod. Yeah, just nod. and Yes. Oh, yes. I'm
0: sorry to hear that. Yeah. You go. <laughs> but, um... But he says, so this is the 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 point he gets to is like. It's not enough to say, when you're re- when you're receiving the f- negative feedback, it's not enough to say, well, you do it too. He says, um, you should say, it doesn't matter if that person does it too. The fact that they're noticing it, it in you means you also do it, and that the reason right. they're able to see it in you is because you do it. So. I guess before I had been thinking about, like, all right, well, like, am I doing it, or is it just that they do it and they're projecting it into me? Whereas Montaigne would say, you guys are both doing it, and the reason that, you know, your friend or whoever who's giving you the feedback is able to see it is because you guys are both doing it. So you should be kind of grateful that they're at least... uh, He says something like, you know, even if they're not able to uproot their own problems they're at least able to address your own uh, flaw
1: yeah it's it's like uh, it's a very kind of subtle subtle thought it's sort of a way to I think Montaigne is good at stepping back and looking at things from maybe not 10,000 feet maybe 4,000 feet and uh, seeing things for what they are which is that really what this is is it's information traveling from one person to the other but it's kind of it's it's substrate independent. The information is valuable regardless of what's going on in that person, what's going on in me. If there's a grain of truth in it, then grab onto it and use it because you, you've received something valuable. Mm. If a serial killer tells you that you've got a mustard stain on your shirt, well, it came from a serial killer, but the mustard stain is there. So they told you something true. <laughs> yes.
0: Yeah. yeah. Like Jeffrey
1: that. Dahmer once told me that. He was wearing a white shirt. He said... You know, right before right before he got uh, electrocuted, he said, "You know, you've got uh, mustard stain on your shirt." And I said, "Oh, thanks, Jeff. I appreciate that." That's and good. I got and it people
0: off. said he was a bad guy. I know. He was, yeah. he was helping you out.
1: Redeeming quality. <laughs> yeah.
0: Well, so that also brings up the point where he kind of says, "You know," because he was very much against kind of what we would think of as like a formalized debate, where there are two people who are both you know, supporting one side of an argument who are both trying to win. They both go into the debate, you know. If you're at a presidential debate, your goal is not to, like, you know, find the truth. Your, your point is to beat your opponent with your argument. And the way Montaigne looks at it is both people in an ideal situation should not be trying to win the argument They should both be trying to uh, uncover the truth and that even if it is your opponent who um, you know says something that is is true and maybe defeats you in, in terms of like defeats your argument that you should almost be grateful in that sense because you've just gained a greater understanding and though your ego might be bruised in the, the short term that that should be the kind of um, ideal that we're striving towards
1: well and I think he ties that into his concept of uh, genuine friendship which is that, and Nietzsche says the same thing, you, your, your best friend should be at times your enemy you mm-hmm. should be able to name your friend your enemy and if you can't do that how close are you really, if I can't say what you just said is the dumbest thing I've ever heard and we remain friends, then what is this anyway? Because that means you don't care enough to to tell me that. If you don't care enough to tell me that and you just don't say it, then are we friends? I don't know, so he appreciates that. But also I think the other thing that he brings up there is when you're striving toward the truth, it's not truth like f- coming to some final conclusion or even consensus, it's that we have a mutual North Star. And the mutual North Star is the, the binding principle that directs our discourse and we're kind of going back and forth and we, you know, we might say something that's not very nice or something that's not, it doesn't matter. We're trying to get towards something that we'll never reach, mm. but that doesn't matter either because we have this unattainable North Star, which is the right sort of metric for, it's the, it's the right metric to strive toward, to, to, actually attain something so it makes the the conversation the discourse itself like an object when it's about the conversation when it's about the discourse then you leave feeling that you understand something better not that oh thank god we both agree on that point I mean that's a ridiculous thing when you think mm-hmm. about it. if you leave a meeting and everybody agrees you don't feel good yeah but when you leave a meeting or a conversation and you did something together you created a little bubble in space-time where you sort of built this little tapestry with the other person you 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 benefit from that somehow it makes you a different person which i think is what he's getting at
0: yeah i mean there's a there's a rationalist blogger that i like her name's julia Galiff. and she she talks about like if you're having a an argument with somebody or like a debate with somebody you can think of it as like a duel or, or I guess you don't have to think of it as a duel, but if you are kind of thinking about it in that zero-sum kind of way, um, think about it as a duel where if you lose the duel and, like, the other person's argument wins, you get to keep their weapon, in a sense. And, it, you know, it's the idea that by kind of, quote, losing the argument, you're actually gaining something. Because you are gaining the stronger argument, you know um and he says something similar here um, let's see if I can find it. Um, you're
1: facing downward, so if this were a real sword fight, I would have already cut your head <laughs> off. I think fencing is a pretty good analogy i like I like that analogy from the rationalist blogger you mentioned mm-hmm. uh, i i think of i think of my relationships, the ones I enjoy as, as fencing. I think I, I, I try not to think of things as, uh, okay, I have to, I have to win this, but instead I'm gonna, I'm, I'm playing around with something, but in a sometimes combative, sometimes not in an agreeable way or not. I try to maintain that. And I, I often think of it as, as sword play. I sometimes use that word for myself. So I like that analogy a lot. But it's maybe it's maybe fencing is better because you said zero sum, but it's, it's zero sum for each, maybe each bout, mm-hmm. but not zero sum for the activity itself. So if we're fencing buddies and we meet every Thursday, I won five, you lost five. But then afterward, we talk about the next time we're going to go fencing and we didn't sustain any mortal wounds and we uh, we grab some kombucha and, uh, you know, then it's, we, we've wounded each other. In a way that has made each other better and in a way which has been highly engaging, hopefully, and uh, we're moving somewhere, so we've got we've we've sort of got some of that gold, right
0: yeah, it's mutually beneficial and also you want somebody to fence with you who is good, you don't want to fence against a three year old who you're just going to destroy, and that's kind of what he's talking about too, as far as like he wants. The people he's conversing with to be tough and to treat him roughly I think he says Um, and he doesn't want the other person to just fear him which is something I notice sometimes in myself and, and I've noticed in other people as well is sometimes there's a tendency to want to surround yourself with people who look up to you or kind of like fear you or worship you in, in some I sense. I fear you, Zach. <laughs> yeah. That's why, yeah, that's why we hang out. It's because yeah. I just want you to worship me. But no, yeah, I mean, there are, but, but, you know, I have, you know, I, I do have like a few friendships, like I'm, I'm friends with this, this guy's a couple years younger than me and, you know, I, I can tell he looks up to me a lot and, and comes to me for you advice. you call him son? <laughs> I don't call him son we're not we're not quite there in our relationship but when i when i check myself like yeah he's obviously getting something from that relationship in that like you know he's he's learning things i mean it's also stroking my ego a bit in, in some sense um so i don't know i don't know how to how to feel i think about
1: Montaigne that. would say that you don't then Monta- I, I think Montaigne would say then you're not getting something from it, in the important way. Hmm. I think Montaigne would say unless that person is providing you, uh, good combat, uh, then, then maybe it is a friendship, but on the basis of something that he doesn't like or he doesn't respect. Right. Right. He, he would say that's a frivolous, a frivolous relationship, or something like that. No, maybe.
0: I think that's right. Well, and it maybe is serving some other need of mine as well, like my need to contribute or to, you know, pass on advice or information. But this, it brings me also to another point that he makes, which is, I think he talked about a friend of his who would get upset if somebody didn't follow his advice, Um, which is another, another kind of character flaw I see in myself sometimes is when somebody comes... You mean his
1: me. friend gave advice? No, no, he said And says, if people didn't follow his friend's advice... Right, right. Then he... Would, yeah, it was his... Yeah, it wasn't... Montaigne wasn't saying he gets upset.
0: No, yeah. Montaigne
1: said he... Montaigne says, I don't care
0: yeah. if you
1: accept it or not. I, I'm happy to just give it. But mm-hmm. my friend is this way. He gets right. irked if someone doesn't.
0: And I, I find myself being more like his friend in that, like... Actually, this has happened to me recently where I had somebody who was coming to me for advice and I felt like I understood their problem and I had good advice to give and had used the advice that I was giving before successfully on myself and he didn't use the advice but then he just kept complaining about the problem and asking me for advice. And I found myself getting, and like, irked, and I was just, so when I read that, I was just like, yeah, that's, that's me. Like, there's, there's a certain amount of like, I guess it would be, I guess it would be ego as well. It would be like, sure, it would be like, I, I value my, what I think highly, and the fact that you asked for my advice, and you're not taking this means you don't respect me. So there, I guess that would, that would be what is causing the anger there.
1: I think, what would Montaigne say? I think he would say, if it's, if it's, uh, a mat- ma- I don't know, I don't want to say mature, someone like me, but not in a pretentious <laughs> way, I mean, Montaigne, yeah. uh, the cup overflows, in other words. Um, yeah, I'm happy to give you advice, and then I realize that that's just one data point in your matrix of possible options, mm. and that might flesh it out a little bit but if you decide to go another direction i recognize that that's because it's a matrix that i don't have full access to only you do and so recognizing that i'm only one point on your matrix is a recognition that is a recognition that you are a whole person with with a complex personality and that you're not just a single thing that is to a, a, a point out there that's purpose is to take my advice when i give it i see you as an object rather than this complex nuanced creature which everyone is
0: right well and i think i think yeah that's a different way of looking at it because the way i'm looking at it is like i see you keep running your head into this brick wall and i think that i know how to not do that and you're ignoring that so i'm gonna have to just keep watching you run into the brick wall Whereas I think what you're saying is maybe there's more to this person's problem and you know life situation that I don't understand, and that my advice, though it might have worked for me m- might not work for that person or there's more to it that i'm not I'm not able to see
1: i if that's a good way of looking at it it could be that, but that's not I think that's not maybe the only possibility it could also be that that person is not in the right state of mind to see that actually your advice is the best advice. It may or mm-hmm. may not be the best advice, but if you give the advice to someone banging their head against the wall to stop, but they're in a position where if they don't do that, their leg falls off, right? And they, they, actually stopping would be better than, than your leg falling off, but they're, they're in a sort of choice situation. They feel that way. So actually Mm -hmm. your advice is better because it's better to have no, did I say arm or leg? No limb than brain damage. But it doesn't seem like that to them because they're a complex machine and you don't have act. Montane wants to say, don't worry about it. Do your best. Do your best for your friends. Yeah. Give advice, be giving, and then leave it at that. But that doesn't mean you don't care. And that doesn't mean that your advice is bad if they don't take it as well.
0: Right. Well, and I like what you said about, it might not be, it might be good advice, but they're not ready for it quite yet, or they haven't kind of, like, maybe reached their rock bottom yet, where they're ready to, like, listen and actually do something about it. Um, Yeah, it could be that. And he says, at the very beginning of the essay, he starts talking off by talking about how um, we can learn more from fools than we can from wise people and that the fool or excuse me the wise have more to learn from the fools than the fools have to learn from the wise um which i thought this was quote, an interesting idea
1: quote yeah. from cicero right
0: yeah that was it was i think that exact i gotta quote read was, cicero. Was cicero
1: he's got some nuggets yeah he drops some
0: knowledge bombs for sure yeah um but Yeah, what do you think of that idea?
1: Well, I guess just to flesh it out, my my understanding of that, he was talking in that part about human nature, in that you look at something that's infinitely perfect, or you look at a perfect example of something. What you take from that perfect example might be something, but it doesn't have the impact of a negative example. And that a negative example actually provides you more insight, and provides you a, maybe a better landscape for improving yourself, just just by virtue of uh, human nature or uh, the fact that it's a little bit more blatant, it's more obvious, right? If you um, if you see uh, people walking over a, a glass floor uh, that uh, that looks kind of maybe weak like it could break and then it does and then a week later you hear about someone else doing that then you might you might realize that 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 happening to them that's a terrible example that i gave but that bad thing happening to them gives me better insight than if i were to see 10 million people do the right thing every time because we are uh we're error detecting edge case detecting Mm. organisms and i'm sorry i keep me- mechanizing everything that i say but we we are error detecting organisms we're pattern seeking by edge case so we look for edge cases as a way as a way to define the world not looking for what's there to define the world and so when we get a new edge case it tells us something new but when everything is status quo then we don't really notice it it's just kind of there even if it's the perfect thing and i think that that makes a lot of sense. I mean, that's the reason—that's that's the that's the theoretical purpose of the media. The purpose of the media is to sit on the edge. That's why all news is bad news, because they're on the edge mm-hmm. trying to discover the problems. They don't report on everything that's fine, because that's right. not interesting, and it's actually not that instructive, in fact. It's kind of counterintuitive. We like to think that, oh, if we look at Buddha and Jesus and uh, Bob Dole, we can— you know, we'll, we'll get the, we'll learn so many things. Maybe not, but not necessarily, unless they explain it very clearly and we're very receptive in the right frame of mind. It's a lot easier to see bad thing, not do that.
0: Yeah. In that, it's kind of, you're kind of learning from cautionary tales. You're kind of, you know, you're watching your brother burn his hand on the stove and saying, okay, I'm not going to put my hand on the stove. But...
1: Instead of all the times he didn't do that, right?
0: But I think the, the you, its a good, good analogy, or not even analogy, but good example to use the news. But I guess the opposite side of that would be something like a self-help book, or maybe even like—I don't know—I think of like maybe like the Tim Ferriss podcast, which is like I'm going to interview all of these successful people and like figure out all of the things that they did to lead to their success. And then the people listening are listening in order to, you know, hear about what Arnold Schwarzenegger did and kind of maybe use some of his principles or tactics to get to the top. But you don't really have, or maybe you do and I just haven't heard of it, but you don't have a whole lot of podcasts where, like, we're going to interview all of these people who really fucked up in their lives, and we're going to make a podcast interviewing them and figure out, like, what they did soft
1: white underbelly mm.
0: yeah well so would you say there's something equally valuable to gain from studying the kind of i don't want to say failures but because that's that has connotations but but studying people who you don't want to end up like as it, as it, do you think it's as important as studying the kind of people and principles of the people who you want to become?
1: That's a good question. I, th- I think it's more like it's not, that, it's not that we can't learn from positive examples and self-help books and Tim Ferriss. Mm-hmm. I, did, I didn't mean to make a face there. I did. I shouldn't <laughs> have done that. <laughs> Yeah, come on, man. I was uh, Tim Ferriss, I did that. <laughs> yeah. Oops. <laughs> now everybody knows how I feel about Tim Ferriss. No, he's fine. Um, but those are oriented toward, those are, if you just watch Tim Ferriss live his life, then you're not going to get it. He's creating a curriculum for you through interviews with these people to make it a little bit more accessible so you can mm-hmm. acquire it because it's been adapted to your uh your understanding whereas if you just watch these people it's hard to gain those insights just by trying watching their lives like Tim Ferriss is the interface between you and and these people who have figured it out he's an interface to communicate to you because of this problem that Montaigne is describing it's hard to get not yeah. that you can't but it's so you need an interface but when you watch videos on soft white underbelly you don't need an interface because it's Which, some maybe wreck explain. of a human being who's about to die and you, mm-hmm. it's so obvious so I think both are valuable but I think it's just harder with the positive examples because there's often no interface right I, think. And, I don't know, what do you, what do you think? well
0: in soft white underbelly for anybody listening is, is not familiar is this uh, photographer who kind of went around and interviewed a lot of the so-called maybe dregs of society, kind of people who 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 society tends to frown upon you know pimps, prostitutes, drug addicts, murderers, rapists, uh, pedophiles, and just kind of let the camera roll, let these people tell their story yeah um, but going back on to yeah. what you had said about uh, kind of like the Tim Ferriss podcast, one of the things I think is is hard to do when it comes to success stories is to determine what things led to that person's success yeah, that's and what things were irrelevant like that person would have been successful had they not taken a cold shower every morning and the third thing how many things uh were actually harming that person's success and that person maybe would have been more successful had they not done that so i think of like
1: a really good point yeah
0: maybe maybe an example would be i think of like mark zuckerberg and you know one of the kind of success hacks for mark zuckerberg is like you know mark zuckerberg he he wore the same t-shirt and jeans every day and because he did that like you know, it was one less decision he had to make, so he had less decision fatigue. And focus, bro. Yeah, focus. he was able to yeah. focus and achieve higher. But, like, maybe another way we could interpret that is maybe the dude would have just done what he did and been as successful had he wore whatever, and maybe a, a level above that, maybe the dude would have been more successful had he, like, Possibly. I don't know, put some, like, thought in, uh dressed up a bit. I mean, maybe that's not a great example because he's pretty damn successful, anyways. But but I guess my point is, you kind of always have to ask whenever you're receiving one of these, like, you know, tickets to the top or like best best practices. All right, is this thing actually causing the success, or is it just a kind of side product?
1: That's yeah, I think that's that's a great point. I mean, I I, I for that reason, I'm quite critical of a lot of those sorts of things. Not that you can't gain insights from them, but you have to be very discerning. Mm-hmm. Because I think a lot of it's just a way for people to feel like they're getting something valuable. It makes them feel good. The Gary V's out there um, motivates people. And that's fine. But to, to what extent is it, as you're saying, it's a false positive. Uh, it's You got there, but actually it was just because uh, you 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 met the right person by accident. How much of it is luck? How much of it is you know because you, you brush your teeth more times per day or whatever it is some some habit. So yeah, I think to an extent there there is sort of a, a, a guru porn element there, and, and you know those people on Instagram who post their morning routine videos. Every morning I get up at 4:30, and then I take a shower. I like to start with a cold shower because, and then they, they go through their routine and they're a model because they're extremely good looking. So they talk about their success but actually it's just their face. Mm. Well, so, yeah. no, and, and Not I, that there's nothing good you can get from that, I'm just saying totally. I, I, and it, maybe, it's a, it's a very, very valid point. Well, and like you said,
0: also motivation. Like, even if you're listening to the Gary Vee show and all of the, the kind of tactics and stuff are actually useless which i'm not saying they are i think i think they're i'm sure there's a lot of good tactics in there but let's say they're all useless and none of that stuff actually contributes um you know if you're still getting motivated and that's causing you to take action then that it, that in itself i think can have a positive benefit so even if you don't listen to anything you know gary Vee or tim ferris or any of those guys say but you just get fired up and that makes you like work real hard and start a business i know for me that's some of the reason that i like listening to that kind of stuff is because it fires yeah. me up and i'm like all right i know i gotta kind of do some grinding like today uh i'm just gonna throw on gary Vee because the dude fires me up and right um you know maybe i won't listen to everything that he's saying but like yeah i can kind of feed off of that energy
1: I, yeah, I think that's that's why he's so successful because he, he doesn't – I think he's intentionally not super substantive because I think he realizes that his impact is largely motivational, which is great.
0: Which has a place, yeah.
1: It does, yeah, for um, sure.
0: Well, I wanted to talk a little bit more about luck because we were kind of – we kind of were circling around it and he actually talks a decent amount about luck in this essay Montaigne does um he talks about there's this kind of idea of like don't judge the outcome of the situation or excuse me don't judge the decision by what the outcome turned out to be and uh he says we must not judge plans by results and he used this example of uh the um carthaginians and the the romans who even if they were successful in battle like even if their commanders were successful in battle if the commanders had made some like really bonehead decisions they would still not be um praised for their victory which is completely backwards to i think how right. the way we think about it today which is like if somebody makes a really kind of stupid call but you know things end up great, we just say like, "Oh, that person was a genius." Oop. Or the reverse <laughs> yeah. of that, if something really an outcome is really negative, but the decision itself was actually a really smart decision, we still condemn this person, that person. And um right. I read a book by the poker player Annie Duke. And she talks about this a lot. She calls it resulting. And how in poker, the the way they kind of mitigate against this is... Um, poker. Her and kind of her poker buddies will get together and they'll say, All right, here's how I played this hand. Here's kind of what happened leading up to this, and here's the decision I made. And she doesn't tell them how the the hand ended up after. She just gives them, here's the information that I had and here's the decision I made. Was it a good decision? So you can say, Okay, I um, you know, I went all in on this 7-2 off suit. Um, and they can judge, okay, well, no, that was stupid. You shouldn't have done that because, you know, maybe you you only had a 30% chance of winning that hand. Right. But had she said hey, I just won the tournament and I went all in on this 7-2 offsuit, the person is much more likely to say, oh, yeah, well, that was super smart because, uh, you know, this reason and this reason.
1: So as a way to sort of hone instincts and place uh, place the emphasis on the right things, it's more about the, the process and the method as opposed to the results because if you hear, oh, she won that hand, then you're automatically not focused on... On, on the technique. Um, I see that, and I think that's also a good way. It makes sense as a way to. So I think that, that's Mon- Montaigne's point there for mm-hmm. sure. But.
0: Yeah, push back a little
1: um, bit. Yeah, yeah. But there is also the element of irrational gut instinct. No logical reason. So, so he's framing it as to, to teach someone how to do something. You would want to place the emphasis on how to do it well, which is a good thing. But then there's still, I think, and he would probably leave room for it, this other level where sometimes you play that hand and it was a stupid hand, but you won. And actually that was because there was a, there's another level of processing happening, mm. maybe in the gut or something. That that knows that at the you know body language and all of that stuff you're not processing it so I think he's focusing on the the things that can be taught but but then I would I would say there still has to be room left for the things that go beyond that so you 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 use those things to become the master but then once you're the master then there 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 are these things that you can't explain like deep uh deep not deep blue AlphaGo the uh, AI that learned how to play the game of Go the, the people who made who built alpha go did not understand by the time that it reached and defeated the grandmaster of go Lisa sedol and, and now is unbelievably better at anyone at go ever um, nobody understands what it's doing mm-hmm. it, it and so it's doing something probabilistically which is a kind of instinct and so i think there's still room to be left for that and to my understanding of of that part was don't let results distract you from the soundness of a decision and the method but not saying much more than that, right? If you're going to explain the battle, talk about the technique don't focus on the results but maybe Napoleon knew some things that he didn't even understand himself that allowed him to make epic decisions you know
0: yeah, no I like that um, here's something I I, I wanted to touch on a little bit. See, he talks about... Um, he ends the, the essay a little bit talking about, like, a lot of the things I say are dumb. Or no, I think he says a lot of the things I write are stupid. That a lot of the times I don't know they're stupid while I'm writing them. And that, like, I need to write them in order to Learn that they're stupid. And that a lot of times, like, it's not even up for me, the thinker or the writer, to decide what is good and what is not. And that you can be somebody who, like, creates a masterpiece and doesn't even know it's a masterpiece. Or you yeah. can be somebody who thinks that what you just created, maybe it's art, maybe it's writing, is really profound. And then you know, you kind of realize it's not. But the process of doing it is extremely important in refining your your own thinking while this is mm. happening. And I think about this a lot in terms of, like, I think I used to think that writing was a process of, like, getting out what I already think onto paper. And that prevented me from writing for a long time because I was like, I actually haven't fleshed out my thinking on all these things, so I don't want to start writing yet. But then I heard somebody say something like, I don't write to express what I, I'm thinking. I write in order to figure out what I think. Mm. And I think that's very true of what he was trying to do. He was It's not like he knew all the answers and he knew what he was going to say. Like, writing for out what he th- thought and that's why he did it and i think conversation is similar as well yeah i think while we're a lot of times we don't actually know our positions on a lot of things and it isn't until we're actually like having a conversation with somebody and we're actually articulating it that we go oh shit i guess that's what i think about global warming but like it had never actually
1: you coalesced know. into words um
0: so i don't know i had some more on that but but do you have some thoughts on on that? Yeah, idea as well? yeah,
1: I think, yeah, that I think, that you you said well what he's what he's trying to get at. It's this both conversation. Saying things out loud, mm-hmm. because, I would include, because I make a lot of videos, just saying things out loud. Yeah, forces you to coalesce thoughts into ideas, as though, as though when you think something you think 70% of the thing that you think and there's a mechanism in there that says alright we got that one next mm-hmm. and it sort of tells you you're done but it's not it's not complete because it has it's not fully formed it's sort of like um, uh, to, to make a software analogy maybe you 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 want to build the perfect app so you spend a year building the perfect app and then launch it. That's usually a terrible idea mm-hmm. uh, because you've f- finished a bunch of things that are shitty. Yeah. Because when the users use them, that they, they don't like it. I don't care about that. I care about that, but you didn't focus on that. But when you put out a minimum viable product in two months, and then you get all kinds of feedback, yes, the idea can reach completion it, in a much more productive way that's useful that's not people don't care about that they care about that and i know that's just i mean that's just an analogy but it's the same kind of thing with a thought that's spoken with a conversation mm-hmm. with podcast with. with a with writing something you you have to externalize it and externalizing it is part of the thinking process but well, we don't think about it that way
0: right we think of it as, as just getting it down on paper or getting it down on audio. But in Yeah, reality, I got it
1: in there. It's rattling around. Yeah. I just haven't put it down yet. <laughs> I got it. Well, so...
0: Yeah, I mean, I love that. And I think this is an area where my own thinking has changed a lot because I think for most of my life, I have been one of these people that's like... But
1: you didn't know that until you just said it just now. <laughs> right, yeah. Now we're getting
0: meta. But, but yeah, so... So I used to be very much like, okay, until I've kind of completed it and got it where I want it in my head, I'm not going to put it out or, you know, do anything. Um, And now it's much more liberating to be like, my thinking is going to constantly be evolving and changing. And I actually read a forward to a book the other day. And in the forward, the guy said something like, here are some essays that I, the book, it was a book of essays. And the guy was like, a lot of the stuff I wrote in these essays, I no longer believe. And he was he was not saying that in an ashamed way. He was almost saying it in a, like, a proud way, and that like it was a good thing that his thinking had evolved. Yeah. Because I knew for me that was kind of a hang-up for me, is that like, well, shit, what if I publish something, and then two years from now, I totally disagree with what I wrote. Um, and, and I think... Well, I personally think that there's nothing wrong with that, and then actually, if you are growing as a thinker and a writer, and just a person, that your thinking a should puppeteer. constantly puppeteer. Your thinking should constantly be updating, and uh, and changing, but there are so many incentives, at least in society today, that like go completely against that. You know, it could be. It could be, if you're a politician and you say something five years ago, and now you know you've learned new information and your thinking on it has changed. Well, now you're a flip flopper, and you can't be trusted, or you 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 have
1: a gotcha moment.
0: Well, in you know, 2010, you voted for this bill. You know, there's there's every. Luckily, we're not all
1: politicians. But you're right that society (laughs) is optimized for for final finality at age 22. Yeah.
0: Right. Well, and it's not just the political sphere. There's also, like, there's also the kind of gotcha moments and, like, well, you tweeted this thing 10 years ago or you said this thing on your Facebook thing. You know, you said this racist tweet 20 years ago. And instead of saying, well, we should congratulate this person because they're no longer racist and they've changed a lot since they were a 16-year-old, we say, oh, no, you, uh, you know, wag our finger at you. So how do I don't You know. should
1: still be doing blackface.
0: <laughs> yeah, right. Well that how do we <laughs> how do we how do we change the incentive structure so that somebody who used to post racist tweets and who no longer does is uh, like there's some kind of like they're kind of praised for having changed their thinking and you know having grown as a thinker as it instead of saying well, you did this bad thing then, and therefore, uh, either you know you're a flip flopper, or you know we're still going to judge you by what you thought, you know, ten years ago.
1: Well, I'm a nihilist, so. Uh... <laughs>
0: so I can't expect any solutions. <laughs> uh,
1: so uh, it makes sense to me, and I think. Great thinkers tend to come to similar conclusions about certain things. And one of the things that great thinkers tend to arrive at is that the orientation has to be toward yourself, within yourself. That wanting society to change, trying to change it, make it change is the is assumption number one incorrect it's actually maybe it will change but it has to start from yourself so so be like montaigne say what you want to say uh but but do it because you want to explore yourself and understand yourself and improve by virtue of your deep curiosity for life and ideas and improvement as opposed to, geez, if I write all of this stuff, maybe the world will change, or maybe people will change. Mm. I think the rabble will remain the rabble. That's maybe nihilistic. But that the, the collections of people, especially as they grow, decrease in fidelity over time. So that's why pop things tend to be less good, because they need to appeal to more people. So the broader... Mm. The group, the le- the lower the resolution of the individual thing, so sure. the individual gets reduced to a pixel, and that's why there can't be there's no room for nuance because it can't it doesn't have the the and I apologize for all the technical analogies this is stupid but all of the 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 human culture especially as it grows internet culture we're connected to more and more people there's less and less room for uh. Or nuance and, res- and, and, and higher resolution within the individual, mm. so we we each become a single pixel, and we're either a black pixel or a white pixel, or we're, we are we are that thing, and we need to be that thing, because the the society can't handle each person being a, a oscillating little quantum thing on its own, but each individual can be that for themselves, and maybe that ripples outward and has an effect, or or, or causes changes in society, or Ah uh, pulls the zeitgeist one way or the other, but it starts with the individual. And Buddhism says that, and Montaigne says that, and Nietzsche says that, and Jung says that, and and you know, many religious thinkers say that. I mean, that's that's what people come to. I think that's that would be my answer to it, right?
0: Yeah. Well, I like that, and I think that ties into like we need to have safe spaces because i'm not <laughs> yeah we need to yeah. have we need to have we need to be able to warm warm sun dip <laughs> bubbles of
1: marmalade well we need to spaces
0: what, what i'm trying to get at is we need to be able to explore ideas and try out different viewpoints amongst other people in safe environments where we can say okay well you know like we were talking about earlier maybe you take a position that you don't necessarily agree with because you want to stimulate the conversation or because you want to get some more clarity on it so we need to we need to kind of be in a place that okay where like you know maybe i say something in a conversation with somebody else that i realize later that night or a couple years from now, I was completely wrong, and I'm able to kind of say, "Yeah, I've changed my thinking on that." And it, there's there's a kind of like that is a good thing, not not like, well, you're saying something different than what you said earlier.
1: But why do you need that to be outside of you? Mm. I guess you know what I mean. Well, so. You have so the the safe space is a very safe is a is a dangerous word because uh, safe sounds like we have to all be nice to each other. I don't yeah, think that's what you're that's saying. What saying. You're saying a place where we can throw around ideas and not worry about uh, losing our job.
0: I mean, I, I know yeah, people that sure. don't want to come on a podcast like this for fear of possibly saying something that their employer might, you know find offensive and fire them for
1: oh i'm i'm hoping to get fired for this one (laughs)
0: yeah you'll have to fire yourself
1: wait i've got a i've got a killer joke at the end i'm gonna use and it's gonna be the end um yeah yeah so i would yeah i agree with you i think that's what you're saying a place where where play can happen Mm -hmm. place for play a playpen playpen is a better word than safe space
0: yeah sandbox Uh, playpen,
1: playpen is that one word or is that two words I don't know. Playpen. I think that's one word. Or is it hyphenated? I... Playpen. I think it's one word. Um, but then all... your 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 playpen, your sandbox may shift over time as you continue to progress. So the and I, I realize we're probably moving a little well I mean, we're still in the in the region of Montaigne, so I think we're yeah. okay. Um, as you develop if you bind yourself to a specific set or a specific playpen then you get locked within it because Mm -hmm. you saw your that group or that playpen as the one where you belong and you integrate it as a group into your identity as yourself so that's why i brought up the starting with self because and i this is what drives montaigne is his deep curiosity so drives Benjamin Franklin. I mean, he he told he told friends to fuck off sometimes. Yeah. Because he they weren't right for him at that time. That happened, and because his curiosity was this this driving force that pushed him to do things. So there will be times when you have that that place to play around, but then a time when you're like Nietzsche at the end of Beyond Good and Evil and <laughs> finally conclude, I need new friends. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. because because the impetus is with is inside, and that sounds mystical and eastern, but I think ultimately it's a it's a simple idea: is that what's the the driving thing core within you that makes you always push, play, follow curiosity, and use that space where when it's useful, but then know when to move on as well, you know
0: yeah no, I like that a lot. I think that might be a, a good note to end on as well.
1: Well, I would say you made a very poor choice of guest, but an excellent choice of of essay. It's a fantastic essay and i'm I'm very glad you chose it. I'm very glad you've recommended Montaigne because I'm going to continue reading the collection. It's really good.
0: Thanks, man. yeah, get on the Montaigne train. Thanks for listening to Unpacking Ideas. If you got some value out of this episode, please share it with a friend or scroll down and give us a five-star review. It's just a little click, but it really helps the podcast grow. Next week, we'll be looking at On Anger by Seneca. So if you'd like to read along with us, that's what we'll be doing. And if you'd like to get in touch with me, you can do that by visiting zachstehura.com. That's Z-A-C-H-S-T-E-H-U-R-A. And if you'd like to hear more from my guest, go over and check out his podcast. It's called The Fractal. Really cool movie podcast where they break down all the different symbolism that's hidden in movies. All right. I think that's it. We'll see you next week.